So welcome to this week's episode of Marriage and Family Clinic. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, my wife and I haven't been here. We've been in Japan uh, attending our annual Holy Week, and that uh, includes our jurisdictional women's convention and holy convocation. And I'm excited to report to you that we had an amazing time. It was simply, truly amazing. The Lord blessed in every way that you can imagine. The teaching, the preaching, the worship, it was all anointed, it was all enthusiastic, and it was all on point spiritually. And it's always exciting to see the Holy Spirit meeting needs right before your very eyes. And my wife and I had an added blessing this time. We had two of our sons there, two daughters in love and three grandchildren. Boy, I tell you, I was just uh, uh, I was just as happy as a lark, feeling all proud, a proud papa. And so we just happy, contented and godly proud. Uh, preacher is what I am here. So let me move on into tonight's episode before I spend the whole time talking about our trip to Japan. Uh, it was a blessing though. Let there be no doubt about it. It was a true blessing. If you ever have any questions about that, please contact me. I'd be glad to talk to you about our work in Japan. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the special guest uh, who provided some illumination into multiple abusive relationships that she had been in. And after what she described to us, I, I know it's only by the grace of God that she's still here. I listened to her and, and the passion with which she spoke. And, and I've talked to her on several occasions outside of the radio broadcast. And, and I tell you what, I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that only God could bring somebody through such experiences that she has had and and she still has her right mind still has a mind to serve and to know the lord still has a mind to be saved and surrender her life to jesus christ i know that's nothing but the grace of god and so tonight i want to discuss uh abusive relationships and i really i really want to key in on a theory of what makes for an abuser in an abusive relationship and, and I also want to talk about what makes for the abused person the victim in an abusive relationship how did they come become to be the abuser and the abusee uh, and believe it or not I'm including both of those I, I may separate those two the abuser we may deal with that at some point in the future and the abusee we may deal with that at some point in the future but for as far as tonight goes I believe that they're closely linked I believe that they are closely linked and as I discuss the matter uh, uh, I hope you will come to see what it is I'm trying to say now, as I listened to our special guest on a few weeks ago talk about the abusive relationships that she's been in, I continued to visualize what she was saying. She was describing the scenario. She was describing the things that were going on in her relationships. I, I, I continued to visualize what she was saying. And as I continued to visualize what she was saying, I couldn't help but think about what's going on in the heart and in the mind of the person who is the victim in an abusive relationship what makes that person stay in the abusive relationship and I couldn't help but visualize and think uh, what in the world is going on in the heart and the mind of the person who is the abuser in an abusive relationship why do both of them stay in the relationship uh, what 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 is it about the person? What's going on in their heart and mind that makes them stay in the abusive relationship? Can the person escape 
the abusive relationship? What does it take to escape the abusive relationship? And I tell you straight up, I'm not going to minimize the importance, the importance of domestic violence. And I won't minimize the importance and, and the gravity of what it means to be in an abusive relationship by saying something trivial and trifling like, why doesn't she just leave? I believe that really discounts the importance and the meaning of what's really happening in an abusive relationship. I, I honestly believe that if it were that simple, we wouldn't have the issues that we have in domestic violence and abusive relationship. If it were as simple as just picking up and leaving, uh, uh, you know, this issue wouldn't be as prevalent and pervasive as it is. But at the same time, I do feel compelled to ask what's at the bottom of the abusive dynamic because abusive relationships are pervasive. They are real. They are everywhere. And a lot of times you're looking at couples, even in church, you're looking at couples who appear to have it all together on Sunday morning. They're dressed nice, look nice, smell nice, talk nice, praise nice, shout nice, even speak in tongues nicely. But at home, one or the other or both are abusing the other. There's an abuser and there's a victim of the abuse. So you never know where it is. It's everywhere. And so we really have to ask the question, what's at the bottom of the abusive dynamic? We've got to deal with questions such as what's going on in the mind and heart of the abused person? What's going on in the mind and the heart of the abuser? Did something happen that forced the person into an abusive relationship? Was the person predisposed to abuse? Is the abuse beyond the abused person's control? Is being an abusive person beyond that person's control? And one question that we really must keep at the forefront is, if a person is abused as a child, are they likely to become an abuser or a victim of abuse later? And as we deal with these questions, one angle to this problem that I think has to be explored is the emotional makeup of both the abuser and the abusee. We've got to look at what's going on emotionally, the emotional maturity, the emotional development, or the lack of emotional development of the abuser as well as the abused person. What's going on inside them? What's going on in a person's emotional makeup that convinces them that the abuse is something other than what it truly is? And that is abuse. And all abuse is wrong. Excuse me. Now, I was searching for a particular quote dealing with interpersonal relationships on Google. And I was trying to Google something. I, whenever I use a quote, I like to give uh, 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 credibility uh, uh, to the author of the quote. And I was Googling the quote. What I found was on interpersonal relationships, what I found was what looked like a million anecdotes dealing with how to treat people, how to be treated by people, and how you want people to treat you. Uh, and while looking through what seemed to be a million quotes and anecdotes, there were two anecdotes that really got my attention. And I'm going to give these to you. I want to share these with you. Uh, 
two anecdotes about personal interpersonal relationships and and treatment that you receive in your relationships two quotes really got my attention and the first one said people will treat you the way you let them people will treat you the way that you let them that was the first one and that's powerful that deserves some serious deep self-reflection because there are some things going on in our lives that we may complain to others about we may whine to others about we may even go to the altar for prayer about them but it's some things going on that we are allowing to go on because people will treat you the way you let them that was the first one. But the first, the second quote is the one that really got my attention. The second quote is the one that really struck a chord in my heart and in my mind. And it said this right here. You teach people how to treat you by what you allow, what you stop, and what you reinforce. Let me say that again. You treat people how to treat you by what you allow, what you stop, and what you reinforce. So according to this quote, however it is you're being treated consistently by specific unparticular people, they continue to treat you that way because that's what you have taught them. By what you have allowed, by the things that you stopped or cut off, and by the things that you reinforced, you taught them how to treat you that way. Now, uh, I want you to pay close attention to that because I don't have scientific evidence to substantiate either one of these statements. Uh, uh, I don't have the test and I, I don't know where the individual got the quote from. However, for the sake of tonight's discussion, I'm going to treat that quote like it's true. I'm going to treat it like it is the honest to God truth. We teach people how to treat us based on what we allow what we stop, and what we reinforce. And if I treat that statement like it's true, then another statement is equally true. People determine what they allow, what they stop, and what they reinforce based on how they feel about themselves and how they value themselves. So statement number one, we teach people how to treat us by what we allow, what we stop, and what we reinforce. Statement number two, people determine what they allow, what they stop, and what they reinforce based on how they feel about themselves and how they value themselves. So the thesis that I want to present to you tonight then is people become abusers and abuse victims based on how they feel about and how they value themselves. Again, I'm not trivializing what anybody is going through. This is a serious matter, but I just want to take one angle. I want to discuss and explore one angle this evening as to what makes for an abuser and an abused person in an abusive relationship. So I'm going off of the theory that we teach people how to treat us, and we teach people how to treat us based on what we feel and how we value our own selves. So I want you to keep in mind, now don't forget, please, this is just one angle to discovering the power and the motivation behind being an abuser or an abused person. 
This is not the end of the story, and I don't mean to lump every abused person into a single category. I'm not trying to give the answer to the whole thing. I'm not trying to settle uh, uh, the whole matter of abusive relationship. Uh, uh, I just want to look at one angle tonight. Here's what I'm saying. It stands to reason that much of the abuse a person suffers is the result of their emotional makeup. Why? Because it's their emotional makeup that determines how they feel about themselves and how they value themselves. It's their emotional makeup that they draw their personal worth from. And each of our emotional makeups is the sum of our experiences and the interpretation of our experiences since early childhood. Wow. I've got to say that one more time. So get this now, it stands to reason that much of the abuse a person suffers is the result of their emotional makeup. It comes out of their emotional makeup. You decide what you're going to accept, what you're going to reject, what you're going to allow, what you're going to reinforce based on your emotional makeup. And each of our emotional makeups is the sum of our experiences and the interpretation of our experiences since early childhood. Now, if you've listened to me before on, on other occasions, you probably already figured out by now. Right here is where I usually throw out the term self-esteem. Now, I won't simply say a person becomes an abuser or a victim of abuse because they have low self-esteem. Even though, quite honestly, that's the truth. That is the truth. But I won't limit it there. I won't oversimplify the matter there. I want to try and help explain why self-esteem is at the root of this problem. I've said it time and time again, and I'll keep on saying it. If you want to know what makes you tick, if you want to know why you are the way you are, you need to begin by researching your family of origin. Look at the family you grew up in. That played the biggest role in helping you become who you are. It's growing up in your family of origin that has made the biggest impact on your psyche, on your emotional makeup, on who you are, on your personality. That all is heavily impacted and largely determined by the interactions you have, the emotional exchanges you have growing up in your family of origin. You develop your emotional maturity, your emotional resilience, your emotional patterns. All of that is based on the emotional exchanges that take place in your family of origin, beginning when you first come home from the hospital. Actually, it begins before you get home from the hospital. The bottom line is your emotional strength is determined by how you feel about and how you interpret your place in the family and in the world. Your emotional strength is determined by how secure you feel about your world, how you fit in your world, this world, uh, your emotional strength, your will is all about how secure you feel in the world. That's what begins to form before you even leave the hospital. Not when you get home. It begins to form before you even leave the hospital. Well, what do you mean it formed before I even leave the hospital? I don't know anything. I don't, I don't, you're right. You don't know anything. 
So your first interactions with your primary caregiver, who's usually your mother, that begins to determine, that begins to shape, that begins to give you information from which you draw your feelings, your thoughts, and your conclusions about your sense of security. Watch this. The rate or speed and efficiency with which your cry for help is responded to helps you determine your feelings about security. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that. Uh, 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 what I'm saying to you, for example, if a baby has to cry a long time before being fed, in essence, he's in distress and his cries for help are unheard, and he remains in that distress until he's fed and the distress is relieved. So he's hungry, that's distressful. He acts out of that distress, he cries. And prolonged distress shapes our sense of security. Prolonged distress shapes our emotional makeup. And prolonged distress has the potential to warp a person's sense of security and sense of well-being. This dynamic continues as a person grows in their family of origin. And you know, life brings about distressing experiences. Those experiences can be as small as being ignored when trying to communicate in the family, those experiences can be as big as some traumatic event, uh, abuse of, of one sort or another, the death of a parent or, or, or a loved one, a close loved one, a primary caregiver especially. Uh, uh, those experiences, those experiences are distressing, large or small, they're distressing. And as we said before, the purpose of being in the family <clears throat> is so that you have a built-in, God-ordained network of help and support to rescue you in those distressing moments and provide support and reassurance and ease the distress. That's how we learn to feel secure in the world. We are rescued out of distressing situations promptly. But the younger we are, and the longer we stay in distressing situations, the younger we are, it forms our sense of, 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 of security. And it impacts, it determines our emotional makeup. So when we're in distressing situations, also our bodies release hormones to deal with the stress. Not only do we have family and others to support us, but our bodies have support mechanisms built in. When we're in distressing situations, our bodies release hormones to deal with the stress. We're at a restful state, a state of equilibrium, uh, a state of normalcy. We're in a normal state, and then something distressful happens. Uh, uh, have you ever heard of flight or, uh, fight or flight syndrome? So something happens, pow, you're scared. You automatically become alarmed, you automatically become aroused, and you're ready to either fight or you're ready to run. That's a built-in system in your body that your body has to take care of you. So when a distressing event happens, our bodies release hormones to help us deal with the stress. The body releases hormones like adrenaline or dopamine or serotonin. Those hormones, they excite us, they pump us up to deal with trouble, or they calm us down 
A certain hormone is released at a certain level depending on the particular distressing event. And those hormones are supposed to be released just long enough to get us through the distressing event so we can turn return to equilibrium, so we can return to a sense of normalcy, get over it, and realize that we are still secure. So those hormones, that we're supposed to deal with the stress quickly, and then the hormones can shut down. Our body can shut down the release of these hormones and return to that state of normalcy. But prolonged release of these hormones or the body's failure to release these hormones at all can alter our moods, our desires, our attitudes, our judgment, our understanding, our sense of toleration, our dispositions, etc., 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 Prolonged release of hormones or the failure to release hormones at all over a long period of time may seriously influence how we read situations. And hence fears may be heightened irrationally or we may not have any fear at all. A person may become an extrovert or a person may become an introvert. All of these things come together to make up our emotional patterns. And as I've told you before, so much of this dynamic happens right there in the family of origin. The family is a system in which there is a lot of emotional back and forth, a lot of emotional give and take. There's a lot of emotional roller coastering. You know what I mean, just ups and downs, ups and downs. You always have something in the family that will take you up and bring you down, sometime within five minutes of each other. There's just a lot of emotional back and forth in the family. Life and family, between life and family, you're going to be presented with all kinds of distressing events. Again, they may be large or they may be small. The family of origin is there to help see a person through it all. Between the family and the body's own hormonal defense systems, a person is supposed to learn to deal with stress. This dynamic acts on every family member differently. And every family member responds and reacts differently based on their personality makeup. As a person grows from infancy on through to adulthood, as a person grows, they experience this dynamic all day, every day. This emotional back and forth is going on all day, every day. The body's releasing hormones in response to stress all day, every day. And by the time they become adult, they have developed an emotional pattern or an MO, as they say in old, old police uh, cop show movies. Uh, and that's how they determine their sense of security in the world and how they fit in. The family social system goes a long, long way in forming a disposition and character, moods, temperament, uh, all those things that we said before. And just the whole personality makeup is formed by all of this emotional exchanging, emotional going back and forth, responding to stressful events, the release of hormones, the failure to release hormones, the length of time one remains in the stressful, distressing situation. All of that, all of that comes together to form the individual's emotional makeup. So what does that all that have to do with a person becoming an abuser or a victim of abuse? I tell you what, as Abraham Maslow's theory goes, everybody is born with intrinsic needs and a person is driven to meet those intrinsic needs. 
It's something that happens automatically. You're going to meet those needs. You're going to be driven to meet those needs. It's an automatic function. You don't have to plan it. It's in you. You're going to meet those needs. Maslow listed those needs in what's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They include the simplest of everyday needs on a base level, the simplest everyday needs such as food, water, shelter. Then they move up increasingly to include safety. Then there's love and belonging, recognition. Then you move up into esteem needs and finally into self-actualization. And according to Maslow, self-actualization is all about purpose. Why am I here? Is it any wonder people often often wrestle with the purpose of uh, with the question of what is my purpose? It fits right in with Maslow's theory. Now, if you believe Maslow, then we cannot stop pursuing these needs. Fulfilling these needs is part of our purpose. Fulfilling these needs help us to become who we were meant to be. And I want to tell you something. God has put purpose in every single individual. And how you meet your own needs and how you respond to the needs of others helps you to realize your purpose. And that drives us. The manner in which we meet our needs uh, 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 and, and the manner in which our needs have been met since birth deeply impact how we interpret the needs that Maslow described. So what am I saying to you here? The manner in which our needs have been met did we grow up and consistently remain in the distressful situation longer that shaped us emotionally? Were our needs met promptly and quickly that helped shape us emotionally? We may grow. If, if, if we have not known the comfort or the relief of having somebody love us truly, we may grow into adults who either accept anything in the name of love or reject everything in the name of love. So depending on the rate at which your needs were met, depending on the rate in which you were relieved and rescued from distressing events, you may grow up and depending on how serious those distressing events were, you may grow up on the far, far left, just accepting all kinds of treatment in the name of love. Or you may grow up on the far, far right, declaring and, and trying to convince yourself that you don't need anybody for anything. And both of those outcomes are equally devastating to the individual and do not represent a real sense of reality. But it's all based on everything that I've told you thus far. So if we've, ne if we've grown up and never had the consistent relief from distress, we may become adults who distrust everybody. Or we may fear intimate situations and relationships. You may have heard of people having a fear of abandonment. The people that they've always cared for, the people that have been close to them, somehow left them either left physically or left through death or left through divorce or, or left through other means. But several people who were key persons in their lives left them at key forming times in their life. And now they have a fear of abandonment. So they don't grow close to people. They don't allow people to become intimate with them in intimate relationships. All right. So this is what we're trying to say here. Everything that has happened to us since the moment we were born, distressing events, distressing events, how they were responded to, how we were rescued from them, 
where we were, were allowed to remain in distressful situations and conditions for extra long times or where we rescued promptly, where our needs met promptly. If we remained in those distressful situations for a long time, we grew up less secure. If our needs were met promptly, we grow up more secure. So everything I've described thus far could have a great deal to do with why a person would choose to stay in an abusive relationship and rationalize their abuser's behavior as love. They've never known what true security and true love really feel like. Consequently, the part of the abuser's personality that makes them feel safe overcomes the part of the abuser's personality that places them in danger. Let me say that again. For the, for the victim of abuse, they continue to accept their abuser because there is an element of the abuser's personality that makes them feel safe. But the abuser's misconduct overshadows and overpowers them. And they remain there. All right. And so this is what I want to share with you tonight. I just want to explore some reasoning, some rationalization behind why people remain in abusive relationships, whether it's the abuser or whether it's the victim of abuse. Hey, I'm out of time now. You've been listening to us tonight on Marriage and Family Clinic. We're here on 1350 AM, 1350 on your AM dial WGPL here in Hampton Roads. Listen to us on the internet, www.christianbroadcastingcompany.com or you can find me on Facebook at Bishop Carl Hodges or you can email me at cdhodges at hotmail.com if you ever have anything you'd like for me to discuss. Send me some words. Let me know if we're making a difference. It's good to be back with you, and we look forward to seeing you on next week, the same time, the same channel here at WGPL 1350 on your AM dial. Hey, let me just add this real quickly. If you are in an abusive relationship, you may not think it's simple to just get up and leave. But if you're in an abusive relationship and your health and life are in danger or the health and life of your family members, your children or anyone else, if you're in an abusive situation, I'm telling you, you have to get out of there. That may be easy for me to say because I'm not in your shoes, but your family doesn't want to see you maimed for life. Your family doesn't want to see you dead unnecessarily. You have to get out of there. I just wanted to throw that in there. So again, join us next week here on Marriage and Family Clinic. We're out of here. Remember, you can't have peace without surrendering your life to the Prince of Peace. God bless you.